Alright, so we'll continue with Revelation. We did such a few number of verses last week that we'll just start from the beginning as a review. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And last week we talked about how Revelation is written to believers. It's written to servants. You can have faithful servants and unfaithful servants, but these are servants. People who've been redeemed, who have heaven as their destiny. But he wants his servants to do some things, and that's what Revelation is written to talk about. And shortly take place is speedily. We talked about last week how this is 40 wisps of vapor we've been for since this was written. 40 lives of people, uh, generations, and, and so from God's economy, it's not very long. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all the things he saw. And we talked about how witness here is martyreo is the root word. So what Revelation is very much about is being a martyr, being a witness, being a, someone who gives testimony. Sometimes that costs us our life physically. In all cases, it, it, ta- it costs us our life from the standpoint of being separated from the world if we're going to follow what Jesus asked us to do here. An angel here we talked about is angelios. It means messenger. We're used to the messenger being a spirit being dispatched from heaven, but that uh, isn't always the case. And in fact, here we know that it's going to be Jesus, and then it's going to be some actual humans that are reading the letter. Blessed, verse 3, blessed he who reads and those who hear. And here is the evidence, and Brandon actually brought this up last week. He who reads, he is singular. So the idea here is Jesus is going to be the messenger that gives the message to John. John is going to send the letters to a person in the seven churches, and a person in the seven churches is going to read to the assembly. So, blessed is he who reads, that's the messenger, and those who hear, that's the people in the church, the servants, the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it. So, there's our sequence. We want to read, we want to understand, and then we want to do it. So the purpose of this book is for servants to learn how to be good witnesses by reading what's in this prophecy and doing it. So it's a very simple book from that standpoint. The prediction of all the things that are going to happen is not so simple, but that's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to help us understand how to witness, how to live a life as a witness. For the time is near. Here, time is near. Again, Brandon pointed this out to me last week. Time is near here is not chronos time, it's kairos time. So time here is an appointment. There's an appointed date. And we'll see as we go through Revelation that God has appointed times. All of history is already rolled out and in place. And this is one of the great mysteries of God, the paradox of God, that although God is sovereign and prescribes all things, our choice is real. And history happens as we make choices. And that's something we can't really reconcile in our own logic. But our logic only makes sense if we begin with definitions. And God is the very definition. In the beginning, God. When a paradox is embedded in God, it's not a contradiction because it's part of His nature. So we're going to see history prescribed and the time is near. The appointed date is near. The appointed date is the appointed date for the end of this age. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Asia at this time is a Roman province. 
the Roman province of Asia, we know it as Turkey. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We're going to see this was, is, is to come, beginning, end. We're going to see this multiple times. And I think the reason is because Revelation is a book about completing the age. And God is the God who began everything. And He's the God that's going to end everything. He's going to same God all the way through. And so we can be confident that as things start to fall apart, that God has the end in His hand just as He had the beginning in His hand. He asked them for grace and peace. Grace and peace are two things that circumstances can't rob us. And as we're going to see as we go through Revelation, circumstances are going to be horrific. Grace and peace can be ours irrespective of circumstances. Verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Here is again martyreo, the witness. Jesus was the original example of what it means to be a faithful witness. And what did Jesus do? What did He do? He obeyed the will of His Father, right? And even to death on the cross. The firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So now Jesus is actually appointed ruler over the earth. When He's leaving, He gives the Great Commission. What did He say? All authority is now mine. All authority is now mine. However, he has not actually physically imposed his authority on the earth yet. But will he? Yes, he will. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He was. He is. He will come. It's an inevitability that those things will merge together. Ruler over the kings of the earth. He has all authority. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so. Amen. So be it. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, The Almighty. So let's look at these verses. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. So what does that again re-emphasize? What does that phrase re-emphasize about this book? It's to believers, yeah. If He says He loved us and washed us from our sins, what does that have to mean? Yeah, the people He's writing this to have been washed from their sins, right? Is this past, present, future? It's past, yeah. This is something that's already happened. So he's writing to his servants, and his servants have been washed from their sins in his own blood. So that is our new birth. So these are people that have been bored, but that's not all. What else has he done? What else has he appointed us to do? As kings. Now, do you think of yourself as royalty? Yes. Would you like to expand on that? Well, maybe it's called truthfulness. Maybe it's reality. Do you think of yourself as a princess? Yes. <laughs> you like to well, let's just think about this for a minute. He has made us kings. Now, We know that one of the big rewards of Christianity is to be appointed to be a servant king in the kingdom that is to come. 
But it's interesting, that's not something that's pending. It's something we've already been appointed to now. And the idea here is, you've been appointed, and if you'll be faithful in small things, then I'll give you a big thing. And actually, we're already appointed to it, but it's something we can squander. It's something we can lose. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you're going to be a king, if you're appointed as king, what are some things that should be on your to-do list? What, what constitutes a really good king or a really good queen? What are some things? Justice. You should want to see justice to be done. If you're going to see justice to be done, what do you have to do? You have to rule. And what does that mean? What's the most basic thing you have to do if, if you're going to rule? Well, you've got to make decisions and govern. What's even more basic than that? Okay, you've you got to have something to rule. That's the, but that's the position. That's the position. Okay, you've got to have some kind of organization. If you're going to have an organization, what's the most basic thing you've got to do? Well, you've got to be an example. But if you're going to be an example, what's the most basic thing you've got to do? It's just too obvious. You've got to show up, don't you? See, the first part of life is showing up. That's the most basic thing is to keep showing up. And, you know, a lot of times we don't show up. That, that's, that's one of our fundamental problems. We don't show up. Another fundamental thing, real basic thing you've got to do is you've got to realize you're the king. Right? So you've got to show up. You've got to realize you're the king. And then some, you've got to realize what your duties are. Justice would be one of your duties. What are some other duties? Serving. Serving is one of your duties. And what would serving look like? If you're going to have a great realm, what are some ways you serve? Dispensing justice would be good. Example. You've got to take care of your people, right? If you're going to take care of your people, what do you got to do? you got to be engaged with them somehow. Know what's going on somehow, don't you? You gotta collect the taxes. Oh man, I don't want to be in your kingdom. Yeah, and if you're really gonna be a king, an earthly king, what is your most important duty of all? Wars are fought over this. Massive disruption happens because of this. Come on, if you'll just think about fairy tales, you know. What is it? Well, land, land, yeah, but I mean even it just even if you're happy with the territory you got, the most important thing you gotta do produce an heir. you got to produce an heir, right? That's the most important thing. Well, we got to visit a place with a king that I think you'll find very interesting and it's worth talking about. Because this king did some of these things and not others. His name was Ludwig. Now, Ludwig built the Sleeping Beauty Castle. There is an actual Sleeping Beauty Castle. It's in Neuschwanstein, which means New Swan Town. And it's on the border of Austria and Germany. Now, Ludwig was king of Austria, and he didn't particularly want to mess with women. There's a lot of speculation as to why that is, but one thing we know is he wouldn't get married and he wouldn't have offspring. And the other thing Ludwig loved to do was build castles, fancy castles, amazing castles, castles full of gold stuff. And this new Schwanstein castle... It's the Sleeping Beauty Castle. It's up on a hill. It's, it's spectacular. It's beautiful. And on the inside, he made it like a fairy tale ride. It has big murals of the great epic story Tristan and Isolde that Richard Wagner wrote. Wagner. It even has this one hallway that's turned into a grotto. It looks like a cave. And he had this caveman. You think you're at Disneyland when you walk into it. As a matter of fact, the Disney motif is a kind of a direct correlation. And Ludwig did something very unusual. His people loved him for it. Dave wouldn't have fit into his uh, administration. 
He actually used his own family's money to build all these castles. He only built a couple. He, but he had in mind to build like 18. Not only that, he didn't show up for work. He spent all his time in his castles. So guess what they did to old Ludwig, who wouldn't produce an heir, wouldn't show up, and was using his family's money instead of taxes to build these castles that had no practical purpose. They were just for show. They were just a place to visit. There wasn't even not, not even any defense capabilities in these castles. Well, Ludwig got arrested for being insane. And then poor old Ludwig is very popular with the people, by the way, because he didn't like to fight, so nobody got conscripted into battle, and he used his own money to build all this stuff. He's very popular with the people. They tried to arrest him, weren't able to because it was so popular, and then they finally got him arrested. And then they took him to an island where a psychiatrist was going to examine him. But poor Ludwig drowned in the surrounding lake that was only three feet deep, and he was an expert swimmer. Yep, Ludwig got knocked off. And then the family immediately turned his castles into being open to the public and have been making a fortune off of it ever since. (laughs) So it turns out Ludwig was right all the time as to how things work. They lost their kingdom, but they still have all that money flowing in every year. Well, I think that Ludwig is a lot like sometimes we think of being kings. Ludwig wanted to use his kingship for his own pleasure. He didn't really look at his duties. He just had this privilege and he had fun with it. And the people liked it because he kind of left them alone. But the people in his family that kind of were in charge of this whole royalty thing didn't like it too much. Now, the example falls short because their goals were not good goals and their methods were not good methods. But the analogy still can speak to us because God has appointed us to be kings, to be queens. And that means he expects us to show up, understand our duties, discharge our responsibilities, and do so faithfully. It's a phenomenal responsibility. I want you to be thinking about that as we go through this whole thing. If you're a king... What is your responsibility? Now, if we got this many kings all through the world, obviously we're going to all have to play our roles. And so we think about the body, and each person in the body has a role to play. But the most fundamental thing a leader does is take responsibility. If you take responsibility, what does that mean? What does that always look like? And you're always going to be taking responsibility for things you don't control. What's always going to be happening? You're always going to get blamed for everything. Right? What do the really good coaches do at the press conference when their team has lost? Every one of them do this. Uh, yeah, this is all on me. They always say that. Why do they say that? They didn't play the game. Why do they always say that? I'm the leader. Yeah, I, I'm the leader. And what they're saying is I'm protecting my player. My job is to protect my players. And so I want, it to st- I want the criticism to stop here. I will deal with it. I want my players to focus on playing, not on dealing with you. And so I I want it to stop right here. They're taking responsibility. And if you have a coach that stands up and says, well, if Peyton could throw the ball, we would have won this game. You know, the, the guard tripped, and he just blew the game. What do you think about that coach? You think, well, this he's a, not a bleeder, he's a whiner. So what leaders do 
is they stand in the gap. They say, I will take the responsibility. And furthermore, what leaders do is they cast a vision. And they say, we're going to this spot. And, and I'm going to go there. I'm going to, I'm going to go there whether you go or not. Which means I now am a witness. I'm a martyr. Because I'm going there whether I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going there whether you come along or not. I'm going to show the way. And I'm going to do so with courage. If they kill me, they kill me. But nothing's going to deter me. So if we have that view about God's kingdom, we're showing the way, we're taking responsibility, we're casting the vision, what we're going to do is create offspring. And not just babies that never grow up. You know, the Bible never calls us to go out and birth as many children as possible and then throw them into an orphanage. What it says is make disciples. And so as we do this king job, what we're doing along the way is we're teaching people what it means to be a king. That's our job. We have a very important position we've been appointed to, don't we? But not just kings. Also priests. What does a priest do? What's a priest's job? Stand in the spiritual gap. Very good. So we've got a physical gap, a physical world gap, and we got a spiritual world gap. What does that look like to stand in the gap spiritually? What are some things we might be doing for people? Praying? I was saying intercession. Yeah, intercession. What else? Good. Huh? Teaching? Counseling? Rebuke. Rebuke? You, you might sit down with somebody and say, hey, listen, you're on the wrong path. Let me help you. That's, that's standing in the gap for them. Yeah. So we've got this king... And we've got priests. It doesn't say here that that is our ultimate destiny. It says it's our current appointment. Washed us from our sins and has made us kings and priests. Pretty awesome, huh? We had not even gotten into all the prediction stuff. And it's already amazing. And kings and priests to who? The world? No. Kings and priests to God and to His God and Father. And to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So we're kings and priests to the Father. And Jesus is the one that's appointed us that. And who's the leading king? Jesus. Who is the leading priest? Jesus. We have a high priest who's faithful over all things. And He makes intercession for us. As Moses made intercession for the people. Behold, He, Jesus, is coming with clouds. And every eye will see Him. So when Jesus lifted off from the Mount of Olives and went up. Everybody watched him go. And then the angel, in this case a messenger from heaven, spirit being from heaven, came down and said, hey, did you see him go up into the clouds? And everybody said, yeah. (laughs) And he said, okay, well that's what he's going to do again, except this time he's going to come back down. When you're a little kid and you go to the hotel that has the atrium elevators with the glass on it, didn't you stand in front of it and just watch it go up and then down and then get in and go up and go down? And you have to tell your kids, quit getting on the elevator. There's people trying to leave. Because you, it's fascinating. Up and down, up. And, well, this is what you know, they saw it go up. He's going to come back down. In the cloud. He went up in the clouds. He's going to come back down in the clouds. And every eye will see him. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because when he comes back, somehow, everybody on earth is going to see it. When we went to Israel, one of the times, one of the four times we've been, we had a guide one time who 
lives on the hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And he kind of knows that they're in the crossfire of a lot of stuff. And his perspective, he told us, was that when Jesus comes back, he's going to land in Mount of Olives first, so he'll get to be there first. And if a rocket goes off or something like that, he said, uh, "This is a heaven's a local call from here. Everywhere else is long distance. This is a local call. <laughs> but every eye will see him. So somehow Jesus is going to come back in such a way that every person on the earth will see him. Even they who pierced him. So that could mean all of humanity that pierces him because all of us participated in the sin that killed Jesus. It could mean the Jews, the peace of the people in Jerusalem are going to pierce him. Probably means both. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. So every nation, every tongue is going to see Jesus and they're going to be unhappy that they see him. Now why would people be unhappy that Jesus had come back? I would propose to you there's at least two possibilities. Maybe you can come up with more. What's two reasons why? And let's just think about a child and uh, mom and dad comes home. Okay, so what is it? Okay, why would you be in trouble? Now, Jamie, why would you think, oh, wonderful. Why would you not think, hey, mom and dad are home, yippee. You got caught. Okay, so one reason is that mom and dad come home and you got caught. And you're like, dang. I didn't have time to clean up. Yes, what else? Hide. What was somebody said hide something? Oh, so what? You got a story to tell? A lot of stories. Okay, hide something, clean up. Okay, because you expected them to come later, right? And they're home early. Dang, what happened? There's another verse about this. Let's look at Luke 12. This is something I think that this parable fits into. This is Jesus speaking. Let your waist be girded. That means have on your athletic shorts. Be, be ready for vigorous activity. And your lamp's burning. Okay, so what is it? Well, 12.35. Luke 12.35. Let your waist be girded and your lamp's burning. So we're ready for vigorous activity and we got our lamps burning because we're going to be working into the night. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. Then he will return from the wedding that when he comes and knocks, they may be open to him immediately. So why, why would you open immediately? You're ready. Yeah, the house is clean. The yard's mowed. The landscaping's all in perfect order. And you're like, master's back. Awesome. Now, have you ever had your parents come home and you were really happy about it? Sure. So what are, what are some things that made your parent, you happy because your parents came home? Okay, you missed them or something like that, but mostly, mostly, look, if you're a kid, you don't really care about that that much, right? It's because they went on a trip and they brought a present home, really. That's the main thing you want, isn't it? Huh? Okay, maybe safety, maybe you're someplace you prefer not to be, you get to go home again or something like that. So, blessed are those servants, verse 37, whom the master and when he comes will find watching. So they were ready. They were ready for him to come back. These are the faithful servants. We're all servants. Some are faithful. I say to, assuredly, I say to you, he will gird himself and have them set down to eat and will come to serve them. So here's the master, and he comes home from the wedding. You know, he comes home from his honeymoon. Everybody's like, oh, we're so glad you're here. We're ready. Everything's cleaned. Everything's landscaped. We got all the fields ready to go. We're so glad to see you. And the master says, I'm so happy that you're ready for me. I want you to sit down, and I'm going to serve you the meal. Pretty cool, huh? 
Uh, but that didn't happen very often in the ancient world. The people are probably listening to this saying, oh, I've never seen that before. Verse 38, and if you should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are the servants. So not only do they say, yay, we're ready for you at 5 p.m. or at 12 noon, if he comes at 9 o'clock at night or if he comes at 4 o'clock in the morning, they're still ready. And so if you come at 4 o'clock in the morning, even more so, the more unexpected that you're still ready for him, the better he likes it. But know this, verse 39, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. So here's another thing. Sometimes you're just kind of not paying attention and a thief breaks in. And if you had known when the thief was come, you'd be ready, right? Therefore be also ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So what he wants us to do is be in a position where we are happy for him to come back because we're ready. And the way we do that is hear, understand, do. Live life as a faithful witness. Live life as a king and a priest. And then we're ready. And it's going to become more and more apparent why this admonition is so necessary as we get into these extremely difficult circumstances in the world that we're going to have to endure. It's going to be hard. Verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Again, over and over again, i got all this scripted. So when you see all this trouble, just know I'm still in control. But know I have for you to be a king and a priest. I have for you to be a witness. That's what I'm asking you to do. Don't just check out and wait for me to handle things. Who was and is to is to come the Almighty. So even though it looks like everything's spinning out of control, don't forget all authority's mine and I'm still the Almighty. So verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion. So again, got believers, and these aren't just believers. These are believers who've been a companion with John in three things. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patience or endurance of Jesus Christ. John is writing to these people. He said, I, I have been a martyr. I have been a witness. At this point in time, probably his 11 fellow apostles are all dead. This is late in his life. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. So I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, the martyr, martyreo of Jesus Christ. So John was being a witness, as God has called us all to do. He was being a witness for the word of God. He was being a king. He was being a priest. And because of that, the world exiled him. Now, Patmos means my killing. It's a sterile island. There's no trees growing on it. It's about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. It has a total elevation of about 800 feet. And it is where the Romans sent people when they sent them in exile. One of the places. Exile is a form of execution. It's a form of death. Socrates was offered exile from Athens. Or Hemlock. He chose Hemlock because he thought that was the lesser of the two evils. When Adam and Eve fell that day, they experienced death because they were exiled from the garden. We as humanity have been exiled every, ever since. And our, one of our main longings is to get back to that garden. So he's on 
Patmos because he has endured the tribulation patiently for the kingdom. And he says, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Again, this whole idea of repetition over and over again. I started all this, I'm going to finish it. This is all one historical story. And I'm in charge of the story. I'm the author. I know the, end, I know the ending because I wrote the ending. Don't despair. I'm in charge of all these things. That's interesting. He says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. If you go to Patmos today, which I have not done, if you go, apparently they point you a cave and say John was in this cave when he got the revelation. And maybe he did. So a lot of times those traditions carry on faithfully for a long time. But it's interesting, he says he was in the Spirit because we opened and we saw the seven spirits before the throne of God. And here once again is the connection between heaven and earth. Last time we talked about Michael coming and helping another angel escape the princes of Persia and they fought for 21 days because God had dispatched an angel, this time a spirit from heaven, to come and explain something to Daniel because Daniel had asked for an explanation. And he's fighting the prince of Persia. And Daniel is serving the king of Persia. And so somehow there's an authority structure on earth and it's mirrored by an authority structure on heaven. And here we see the seven spirits before the throne of God and the spirit is also there with John. So there's a much bigger connection between heaven and earth than we really think. And that's one of the things I hope we can really ingest as we go through Revelation because... It's real. And hopefully this idea of being a king and a priest will get more real to us as we go through because that's where we are. And I heard a trumpet, like a, uh, sorry, a loud voice like a trumpet and it said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches that are in Asia. Again, this Roman province. To these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I mentioned this last time, but you're actually going in a clockwise circle as you go through these churches. Ephesus is at the kind of the southwest. It's the trading center, the trading port, and it's the first one. And then you go all the way around to Laodicea. They're, they're actual physical cities. We'll, we'll see those cities here shortly. I want you to hear this. I want you to write it down. Then I want you to send it to them. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded around the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes a flame of fire. Now I just want to stop here and dwell on this, because some of us in here have white hair. (laughs) Are you ashamed of your white hair? You shouldn't be ashamed of your white hair. But would Jesus have, have show himself with white hair if it wasn't a cool thing to have? <laughs> really? Now, come on. His, aim, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. 
So here's John, and John was the guy who called himself the beloved disciple. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he's at the Last Supper and he's leaning on Jesus' breast. He has a special relationship with Jesus. And he sees Jesus in this circumstance and falls down like a dead man. Now John was on the Mount of Transfiguration. They fell down then too. So when we see Jesus in His glory, I don't think there's going to be high fives. (laughs) I think we're going to fall down. And this is one of the reasons God masks Himself in our world. If He didn't, no one would have a choice but to fall down. No one would have an option but to do anything than confess Jesus is Lord because His presence is so overwhelming. So He has masked His presence where it's still obvious the heavens declare the glory of God. You look around everywhere and there's order and and there's the image of God in everything we see, but we're not compelled to see it like we are when we have His physical presence. He has in His right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance is like the sun. And we're going to see this more as we go through, but when we get to the end and there's a new heaven and a new earth, it says that Jesus is so bright you don't need the sun. There's a new energy source and it's a person because the sun is just a consuming fire. And it's actually decaying over time. Jesus and God is a consuming fire that never decays. He's like the sun in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, because I am that guy who loves you. I'm the first and the last. i got all this under control. I'm the one who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to two things, Hades and death. Now this is very interesting. Hades and death, he has the keys to This is a pretty big deal. Hades and death are two things we think about a lot. What are these things? Well, let's look at Revelation 6 and verse 8. This is another place where Hades and death are discussed in the book of Revelation. Revelation 6 verse 8, So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. So these are the horsemen of the apocalypse. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. So Hades and death are connected in the four horsemen. Let's look at Revelation 20, verse 13. So this is now at the end of the Revelation. It says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. So somehow... Death and Hades are, are connected and have the dead in them. Now, if we went through and did a full study, we could use a whole class period. But in very short order, Hades is a Greek word that actually comes out of Greek mythology. And interestingly enough, the New Testament takes this word that comes out of Greek mythology and just incorporates it in as a word that's the equivalent of the Old Testament word, Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament is used for the place of the dead, the grave, death itself. It's used in multiple ways. But one of the ways is the place of the dead. In Acts, you actually see a quote from the Old Testament 
that takes the word Sheol and replaces it with the word Hades. Now, Hades had two compartments. One is called Tartarus, and actually the word Tartarus shows up in the Bible as well. And one was Elysian Fields, uh, and it's the kind of the paradise compartment. And apparently that model is accurate enough where the Bible just took it in and used it. So it's a place. But look where this place ends up. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So we usually think of Hades as being hell, hell being the lake of fire, and that's not accurate. The lake of fire is actually the one thing that remains. Hades is a temporary thing. And in fact, when you see the word hell in the New Testament, it's usually a translation of uh, the word Gehenna, which is actually something else. It's a valley in Jerusalem. You can go there. I've, I've been to hell before. I've actually stood in Gehenna. And it's the place where the refuse and the trash and the carcasses were put, and they always had it on fire to clean it. So it's a picture of death. It's a picture of the ongoing fire and worms cleansing the death. And, and, and it's a picture of this is what sin gets you. It gets you this kind of picture. And, and that, that picture can apply to multiple things. But what happens to death and Hades is they're ultimately dispatched into the lake of fire. Why? What does that mean about sin and death? I'm not sin and death, death and Hades. There are no more. They're temporary. There are no more. So when Jesus says, I have the keys, I think it's kind of like when you watch a basketball game. And they start off and they'll say, here's the keys to the game. And what do they list when they say that? Yeah, you're rebounding or something like that. Well, why are they saying that? This is how you win. Right? If they'll do these things, they win. If they don't do these things, they'll lose. If they do these things, they'll win. If they don't do these things, I know how to win. I know how to dispatch these guys. I have authority over sin and death. Is that a big deal? I mean, who here likes death? Anybody here for death? Death is the ultimate, it's the last enemy to be vanquished. And not only death, but the place that death is associated with. They both go into the lake of fire. So, there's going to be a lot of death that we're going to see in this book of Revelation. Lots and lots of it. Large swaths of the earth are going to die. What should we never forget? Jesus has the key to death and Hades. This is just part of the game unfolding. He's the first and the last. He was, He is, He is to come. The ultimate outcome is not in doubt, even though it may feel like it's in doubt. There's going to be tribulation in this world. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be difficulty. And as that difficulty unfurls, we can't forget where we're headed and what's going to take place. Verse 19, Write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So, write down what you've seen. Write down what is. Write down what's going to come. You see the parallel? Jesus was, is, is to come. And He's going to tell us what was, show us what is, and show us what is to come. And John's going to write that down. History is as much of God as God is of history. It's all a package because God is in control. He created, He created history, He's going to see that history turns out. And it's going to turn out with a resolution. He's going to have a resolution that we all like. Verse 20, 
the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the messengers or the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So once again, we see a connection between heaven and earth and God is holding these messengers in His hand. Now, I don't really know about these messengers. We know the ecclesia was a gathering. We know that these churches had uh, uh, elders, plural. But apparently there's also a spokesman who is going to be the one who reads this letter that has a particular elevated status in God's mind. And he's holding them in his hand. And that's, that's an encouraging uh, idea, isn't it? You know, I've got the whole world in his hands. He's, I'm sorry, he's got the whole world in his hands, old spiritual song. But he's got these stars in his hand and he's holding them. And he's got the lampstands there, the churches, and they're right there in heaven with him. And somehow there's a connection between the physical church on the ground and what God is looking at in heaven. You know, the scripture tells us that the angels watching over our children are in the presence of God looking in his face. There's a, there's a real connection that we're living on a daily basis between us and our kingship and our priesthood and God. Hebrews tells us we should daily enter the tabernacle that's in heaven. And what we should go and do there is ask for help when we need it. And what we should do there is ask the high priest to sprinkle our conscience so we can be cleansed, so instead of bearing guilt, we can go and serve. That's the, we're supposed to do that daily on an ongoing basis because that tabernacle in heaven is real and we can go there at any time. So we're kings spiritually and we're supposed to live it physically in this world. Just like there's a star in heaven, there's a candlestick in heaven and there's a real place on earth where that's being manifest. And bringing heaven and earth together is ultimately going to take place in the new earth. We're going to see heaven comes to earth. That's going to be the final resolution of history. That's going to be the most exciting thing we've ever seen. Meanwhile, we're supposed to be bringing heaven to earth. Because we are a king in God's administration, which is not of this world, but we're in this world. We are a candlestick and a star in heaven but we're to be doing our job on earth. It's pretty cool, isn't it? What a linkage we get to make if we're aware. And how do we make that linkage? Be a witness. Hear, understand, do. In the station that we're given, can you hear, understand, and do in a station you're not in? Can you hear, understand, and do in a role you don't have? Can you hear, understand, and do in a place you don't live? You hear, you understand, you do right where you are. And when we do that, we're doing something phenomenal. We're doing something amazing. We're doing something that is as incredible as this book of Revelation. We're apocalyptic. Thank you, Jesus, for this amazing book. And I pray as we go through this, you'll just energize us to be kings and to be priests in your kingdom and to bring heaven to earth in our realm because we're living as witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, I'm having the time of my life going through this. (laughs) This is so much fun.